You're listening to the Root and Stem Podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. In this episode, we continue our literacy series speaking to Wabgija Grice, author of Moon of the Crusted Snow, a John Campbell Award-nominated novel. Wab talks about a sequel, his background in journalism, the role of literacy in learning and reconciliation, and much more. Ani, hello. My name is Wabgijik Rice. I live in Sudbury, Ontario, with my wife and three sons. I'm originally from Wasaksing First Nation on Georgian Bay. I'm of Nishnabe in Canadian descent, and I am an author and a sometimes journalist. Moon of the Crested Snow is a post-apocalyptic novel about a First Nation in Northern Ontario that experiences a mysterious blackout. Initially, the community is able to adapt to the big change because of their proximity to the land and some of their land-based knowledge that's been inherent to their culture as Anishinaabe. But as the weeks go on, things slowly start to unravel and then some unexpected visitors come up from a city to the south and that leads the community to make some tough decisions about its future. Uh, so it is about a world-ending event and it's often, you know, categorized as post-apocalyptic or dystopian, but, you know, I see it as part of a wider discussion about reconnecting to the land around us, imagining what a post-urban future can look like, and really tapping into the essence of Indigenous knowledge and experience to figure out how to live on the land with everybody else in a good way. So uh, it's a shorter novel, but there's a lot in there, I believe, that I think people can really think over, especially during changing times. And uh, yeah, it came out in 2018, so almost five years ago, but I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to share it and discuss it and uh, meet new people who enjoy. Moon of the Turning Leaves is the sequel. It takes place 10 years after the end of Moon of the Crested Snow where we find this community in a new settlement in the bush where they've largely you know reconnected with uh, land-based living and some of those customs but at the same time you know they're still enduring the trauma of what they experienced with that cataclysmic world-ending blackout and also their experience as indigenous peoples and being colonized and displaced and so on, right? So there, there are some, you know, ongoing uh, trials that they endure in their new settlement, but ultimately they discover their food and natural resources around them are starting to dwindle and that traditionally Nishnabek like them were migratory and they decide that it's finally time to move on. So they embark, a group of them embarks on a mission of discovery to the south to see, you know, what's left of the world, if in fact it has ended, and to hopefully reconnect with other communities if they still exist. But most importantly, to reconnect with their original homelands, because as it's explained in the first book, 
the community has been displaced from the Great Lakes to far northern Ontario, and they endeavor to return to their homelands in Moon of the Crest, uh, Moon of the Turning Leaves. Sorry. Uh, so it follows a group of six people as they go on a long walk over the course of a summer to the south. When I finished with Moon of the Crested Snow, um, I was very satisfied with the ending. You know, to me, I had accomplished what I wanted to with the story. And I, I, I quite literally, like, saw the characters riding off into the sunset, you know? <laughs> and I sort of left it at that for me, for myself, internally. And I thought, okay, if, if readers want to imagine, you know, an X part or an extension of that world, they can do so. That's what I love about literature is, you know, letting my imagination go to different parts that the author has perhaps led me to. So that's sort of what I saw the progression of Moon of the Crested Snow being, never a wholesale part two or a series or anything like that. But when it first came out in the fall of 2018 and I began to do the publicity circuit and interviews and meeting readers and so on, I often was asked if I was considering a sequel and I wasn't. So I would respond honestly to people and say, no, I'm, I'm not thinking of a sequel. And I noticed that some of them were, you know, were very disappointed when I tell them that. So I thought, oh, geez, you know, I, I should massage the truth a little bit because I'm really letting people down by not, uh, you know, proceeding with this world for them. Um, so I, eventually I would say, you know, like I've, I've thought of some things, but, you know, we'll see what happens kind of thing. Uh, it wasn't until the following year, um, the summer of 2019, that things started moving towards a sequel. I had partnered with my agent by then, uh, Denise Bukowski, and she saw the response to Moon of the Crescent Snow was very good, and she knew that I was getting a lot of questions about a sequel, and she said, if you start really seriously thinking about a part two, I know I can probably get you a, a book deal to, to explore it. So I started thinking about the sequel then, and then in the fall of 2019 is when I started to formalize more of a pitch, uh, more of a well-rounded story idea. And I was partnered with uh, my editor now, uh, Rick Meyer, uh, Penguin Random House Canada. And he and I just sort of kicked some ideas around for a few months. And then when he was satisfied that there was enough for a story there, uh, they offered me a publishing contract. And that was in uh, the spring of 2020. So that's really where, you know, things started moving for me. And that's where I started developing the story and writing it and so on. And uh, now it's going to be out in the fall, in October. I'll speak only for fiction because that's what I'm the most familiar with. Um, I think the maybe uh, myth around fiction is that everything is made up and that these aren't real experiences or stories or whatever else. But speaking for myself and for a lot of my peers who are Indigenous authors, everything in our works is rooted in reality, rooted in our truth. Even if we're writing about made-up people and made-up places, there is a historic and cultural foundation to all those works that I think are essential in helping non-Indigenous people learn about Indigenous experiences. And really at the core of that is the humanity that we're trying to express. To me, given the scope of a novel and the detail and context you can explore, I feel like I'm a more effectively able to humanize 
myself, my family, my community, my wider nation, even if I'm not writing about them specifically because I'm showing the day-to-day -day experiences. I'm showing the hopes and dreams of Indigenous people in stories. And I see the sort of irony in talking about an end of the world story like Moon of the Crescent Snow and, and hopes and dreams of the future and all that. But it's all inherently there. And, and I think that taps into the spirit of resilience that, you know, is often attached to Indigenous nations and Indigenous culture. Um, so I guess a more concise way to put that is, you know, non-Indigenous readers can learn about the humanity of Indigenous people through fiction. Just by having that context and those profoundly personal human experiences that we are able to, I think, finally convey in a novel. Uh, that's how I see it anyway. And of course, it's a huge responsibility. And I try to do that as respectfully and properly as possible. But at the same time, it's really exciting because I can feel the connections that are being made. And I, I, I see and hear the responses from people who are both Indigenous and non-Indigenous who are really resonating with the humanity and the stories that I'm trying to write. I was fortunate that I got my start in publishing through Indigenous publishers, through Theta's Books, uh, ba based in Penticton, BC. They published my first two books, Midnight Sweat Lodge and Legacy. And I think having that cultural connection and really introduction to the publishing world uh, through an Indigenous publisher was really good for me. It's really beneficial because I think I had experienced people um, showing me what the industry was like and, you know, the things that I could expect and some of the barriers that I would come up against. But otherwise, I think it's it, publishing is really almost like any other mainstream industry that is dominated by majority white culture, you know, by majority settler culture, in that there aren't as many diverse or so-called marginalized voices, especially at the decision-making level. So there is that ignorance of what, you know, different ways of life can be, whether that's Indigenous, Black, Newcomer, Queer, uh, so on, right? Um, things are improving, of course, but um, when you have people who have really been raised with predominantly uh, one perspective, the mainstream Canadian perspective, it, I think it, it can be difficult for them to think, change their worldviews or outlooks on what different communities' realities can be. So for someone like me, who's a storyteller coming up in that industry and, you know, wanting to share my stories and experiences, if the people making the decisions and who ultimately control the money um, don't connect with that and don't relate, then um, they're going to look to something that's a little more accessible or easy for them to uh, understand, you know? Uh, so yeah, one example is when I was, um, you know, pitching my first novel, Legacy, uh, I was doing it on my own without an agent, and I sent query letters to a bunch of different uh, publishers, and one of them wrote me back, I won't say which one it was, but they wrote back and said, um, we are already publishing a book by an Indigenous author this year, so thanks, but no thanks, right? <laughs> so they had their box checked and they didn't need any more Indigenous authors, you know? Uh, so that was discouraging, but not surprising uh, because I had worked in media uh, for a long time by then. 
at CBC. So I knew how those industries sort of worked. But on the flip side, I've been very supported and very encouraged by Indigenous-specific programming within the arts. Uh, my first grant through the Canada Council for the Arts that I got in 2004 was for emerging Aboriginal writers, as it was called back then. And that really uh, helped me break in. You know, it helped me meet people in the arts industry. And those people helped me connect with, with Fetus Books, which was my first publisher, whom I mentioned are Indigenous-specific. And that really, you know, helped me, I think, ease in to it overall. So, you know, there are, of course, benefits and drawbacks to how any arts industry is comprised. But I've been fortunate to get where I am today, uh, thanks to the elder storytellers like Louise Bernice Half, like Lee Maracle and Richard Wagamese, Richard Van Camp, who have guided me on my way to this point. And so it's my responsibility to do that for other emerging Indigenous writers too. There are skills I learned as a journalist, you know, as a storyteller and writer, that I was eventually able to adapt to what I was trying to do as a fiction writer. And really, I think, I guess, helped me find my voice as an author. The biggest benefit, really, to being a journalist, uh, so throughout my time at CBC, I was mostly a TV reporter, uh, reporting in Winnipeg, Toronto, and Ottawa. Um, and then for my last couple of years, I was a radio host here in Sudbury. So all that time, I was talking to literally thousands of people. You know, I, I, I tallied the amount of interviews I had done by the time I finished at CBC, and I'd done something like 10,000 or something like that, right? So when you have that, I think, close connection to people on an everyday basis, you really have a front row seat to humanity and to the human experience in all kinds of scenarios. And I've always felt that I, that has what has helped me the most as an author, really, in understanding, you know, how humans can react and respond to different situations, what their feelings are, what their interpersonal connections are, what the social dynamics of their communities are, and so on, right? And even though, like, I, I don't write about those things because those aren't my stories, but if I'm writing about a similar situation in fiction, I can really dig deep mentally and think about something similar that I've covered as a reporter and just maybe pull specific details from that that could help me write about that uh, moment that I'm trying to explore in fiction, right? And again, it's not that person's story, but it's maybe if it was a scene of a car crash or something, you know, like remembering seeing how the glass you know, spread across the asphalt or something like that. You know, and that's a, a grim sort of example, but that's what comes to mind immediately, right? Like, I'll remember how that looked and then I can write about that. So being, you know, right on the scene of all kinds of different experiences, I think has helped me illustrate a lot of the things that I'm trying to explore in fiction. And then with writing specifically, you know, I worked in broadcasting most of the time. And in that method of journalism, your writing has to be very concise and very active. And when I first started out as a fiction writer, I'm um, getting published. Uh, I didn't write that way. You know, I was very, I think, descriptive and I spent too much time 
writing, exposition, and so on. Uh, but the editor of Moon of the Crested Snow, Susan Renouf at ECW Press, um, she suggested that I sort of tap into that writing style as a broadcaster and being more active and being more concise, especially with a story like Moon of the Crested Snow that, that needs a certain pace, right? And that was really eye-opening for me. You know, it really helped me figure out how I wanted to write fiction. So that was sort of a later revelation, but it's something that really has helped me now figure out how I want to write going forward. So, yeah, it's, you know, I, I worked uh, as a journalist sort of professionally for almost 20 years. And, you know, all the experiences were hugely beneficial to my career now, the, my career focus now as an author. The day that always sticks out the most is when I covered the federal government's apology for residential schools in June of 2008. Uh, I was in Winnipeg at the time and I was assigned to cover just the day of events. And the political organization called the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs rented out uh, a big convention room in the Radisson Hotel in downtown Winnipeg. And they just made it available for anybody who wanted to come and watch the apology. And they weren't sure how many people would come, but eventually the room was packed and they had to rent out a separate room for more people and set up another screen and so on. Right. Uh, but I was there, you know, just getting people's reaction to the apology. And it was uh, mostly residential school survivors who had really just been encouraged to talk about it for the first time as a result of coming together and seeing the prime minister apologize for the ultimate wrong that had happened to them right uh and yeah that was that will always be probably the most important event that that i covered as a journalist i think you could easily argue that canada the united states australia new zealand any colonized nation now as it exists is a dystopia for the indigenous people who lived there previous to these new states being established to them being invaded and the indigenous people being pushed to the periphery or outright victimized by genocide so what exists now with you know languages depleting cultural practices many of them being erased uh communities being separated families being separated children growing up very detached from their families and so on that's all very dystopian and those are all realities of canada now so there has been an apocalypse multiple times over for indigenous nations worldwide uh, but those attempts at genocide or a right elimination were unsuccessful because we remain and many of our cultural practices and our languages uh, still exist, although many of them are, are hanging by a thread in many ways, but they are still there and we are mobilizing to restore many of them at the same time. So yeah, as, as he wrote, we, we have the tools and in a lot of communities, there is the desire to restore everything, to revitalize uh, traditional ways of life. Um, and I think that is really one of the ultimate acts of resistance. You know, it defies genocide. It restores a sense of, of nationhood and belonging and cultural pride and so on, right? So we're still, you know, I believe in the very initial stages of of that recovery. 
Um, and a lot of communities aren't there yet either. They're still overcoming uh, a lot of those brutal practices and uh, historic moments. Um, but uh, one great thing of many of us being so interconnected nowadays, especially through digital media, is that you know we can inspire and influence others to uh, take pride and to enact some of those restoration practices and so on. Right. So so we've survived, uh, and now the next steps are totally revitalizing everything. The irony is literature is largely done in the languages of the colonizers, right? In French and English and, and Spanish and, and whatever else. Uh, so those, I think, acts of creating literature in the languages of the colonizers aren't necessarily as helpful in restoring the languages themselves. Although what I try to do is include as much Anishinaabemowin as possible in my English texts, mostly for the sake of representation, uh, to show that the language is still there and that it has a place in an English text, in a piece of literature. Uh, so that is one small, I think, step that I can take in ensuring that language is immortalized in some way, even if it's just one small part of it. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier uh, of that uh, human contextualization, you know, of being able to create something that's accessible and that can be shared amongst communities and that shows the experience of those historical wrongs and the efforts to recover from those and restore everything at the same time, right? Um, you know, the, the spirit of both Moon of the Crested Snow and Moon of the Turning Leaves, even though they're so-called end-of-the-world stories, is renewal. Both of those stories are about starting over and about confiding in traditional ways of life to heal and to find a way forward in the face of yet another catastrophe, you know? And uh, I think if anything that can hopefully, not necessarily provide a roadmap, but just, you know, provide a glimpse of what is possible. You know, even though these things that I've written about have not come to pass, you know, in terms of like a world ending cataclysm, but it refers to the cataclysms that have already happened and what has sustained despite those things, despite those efforts to erase our identity and us as people outright, you know? So yeah, just, just providing those, those uh, different snapshots of what life can be. And again, given the space that's in a novel, um, you can really get to the heart of a lot of um, really profound experiences and, and lessons. I think so. So that's one way that I think literature can do that. Um, and I, I speak only for myself and what my intentions are. But uh, it, it is, uh, again, exciting to contribute to that, but also very humbling at the same time, because I want to make sure I do it properly. In Ontario, there's a specified grade 11 English course that focuses on Indigenous literature, which I think is great. Uh, I could never have imagined something like that when I was in grade 11 back in the mid-1990s. And yeah, back then, I, I, I really did not know that Indigenous authors existed. 
or that there were, were books about specific Indigenous experiences by Indigenous authors out there that could potentially be accessible to me because that wasn't being reflected to me by the provincial curriculum at all. You know, there is virtually no diversity in the English courses that we had back then in Ontario. Uh, and I fortunately had an aunt who, you know, was very keen on Indigenous literature and shared uh, books by authors like Richard Wagamese and Lee Marico with me, right? And, and that really changed the trajectory of my life um, by being exposed to these works. Uh, so I was fortunate, you know, I had a family member who cared and who was tapped into that uh, way of storytelling and she passed that on to me, which really inspired me to do that on my own. So I guess I was an exception in some ways, you know, um, I think back often about my peers who could have used something similar um, wherever they would have been um, to potentially inspire and influence their career choices, right? But they were failed by the education system by not being exposed to that whatsoever. But fortunately now, you know, like almost 30 years later, uh, there is that dedicated course there in Ontario. Uh, there are more widespread discussions around Indigenous arts and including them in education and so on. And I think we all benefit by that. You know, students, parents, communities more broadly, because there is, there are more meaningful discussions around these stories and around that mode of storytelling. And I think it helps open the door to create relationships between communities and amongst neighbors and so on, because there are some validated human experiences, even in fictional works that people can really learn a lot from. So, uh, yeah, just definitely trending in the right direction. Could there always be more done? Of course. But um, I'm very happy as a dad now. Um, my kids aren't near high school age yet, but by the time they get there in the next decade or so, it'll be probably even uh, much more improved, hopefully, right? Uh, so, yeah, I think things are going in the right direction. Because of how our societies have progressed, especially in the last like century, it's really been rapid. Very quick evolution of what we know of time and history, technological and industrial progress and so on. And because of that condensation of all these major moments into a really brief period of time, I think it's easy for all of us to forget, Indigenous people included, about how things used to be, even just like 200 years ago, you know? And... When I speak more broadly about some of the themes in Moon of the Crest of Snow about returning to the land and understanding how it can provide for us and so on, I, I always make sure to bring up that virtually every civilization around the world is rooted in some sort of agrarian society, right? You know, we all come from the land. We all have knowledge of how to harvest food from the land and how to farm it and, and you know, harvest medicines and whatever else from the world around us. So I I think it's a matter of reminding people of that mental shift they need to take and, and really looking back to where we've all come from. Uh, but it is really hard to do that because we're just being bombarded by modern information all the time. Uh, so with Moon of the Crested Snow, it's about the lights going out and all those things being inaccessible again and being forced to, I think, look at the natural world around us. But then recognizing that, oh, we all have this inherently as human beings. 
you know, we all came from this existence of a respect for the land and, you know, uh, not exploiting it and making sure that we live with it in a harmonious and cohesive way and with each other as human beings, right? So, yeah, of course, that can be seen as like an Indigenous worldview right now. And and I think Indigenous nations around the world uh, still have a strong connection in that way. Um, but as I mentioned, everybody has that as humans. And uh, I think we can all tap into that just as long as we're able to remind ourselves of, of that link that we have had. And really how relatively short ago that was, you know, just a few centuries that we all lived in that way. Uh, so th that's how I see that, I think, potentially unfolding if we're going to make some sort of collective effort going forward um, in being inspired by that land-based living. But I think, you know, we can turn to a lot of Indigenous nations who are still firmly rooted in that way of life um, for inspiration, for sure. And we don't have to go far, you know, like I live in Northern Ontario um, in, in Sudbury, which is considered a big city around here, but some communities that are just a couple hundred kilometers away uh, are very, um, you know, land-based, you know, they sustain themselves in, in many ways from uh, the world around them. Just a matter of learning from each other. The first things that come to mind are, are unpleasant memories, you know, of, of hearing racial slurs um, in Perry Sound, Ontario. You know, the town right beside my community, you know, playing hockey or, um, you know, taking part in rallies and, and being shouted at by, by people on the side of the road and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I think learning about, you know, hatred and, and negativity was was pretty, I think, uh, informative for me um, in, in knowing about the power, uh, the negative power of language, because that becomes a, a huge teaching moment for you know your parents or your community or everybody else right like if you're being called nasty things as a little kid uh it's rough and it's heartbreaking and it's very confusing so you know some of my earliest memories are of my parents talking me through some of those some of those nasty things right um but you know uh on the other hand those responses and the care and consideration which you know my elders or parents or whoever else took with us and i think teaching us not to walk with with hatred or anger as a result of those things uh, very important as well and i think that guided me to approach those moments of ignorance i guess with care and compassion as weirdly as it sounds and knowing that people don't necessarily have the knowledge to understand Indigenous experiences and so on. So yeah, on the other hand, that's that that's an important, I think, reflection of the importance of, of storytelling and words and so on, right? But then, yeah, after that, like, growing up in my community in the 80s and 90s was a time when people were really reconnecting with Nishnabe traditions, um, including storytelling, including having cultural celebrations like powwows and ceremonies like sweat lodges and so on. And I think the practice of, of storytelling in those moments and the real process of passing those things down, those things that were long forbidden, or we're shamed out of our community or whatever else. I think that 
taught me a lot more about the importance of 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 words of experiences of sharing stories and so on because i learned how crucial that was for our survival our culture's survival and so on and i think that has really guided me uh since then for the rest of my life you know i'm 44 now and i will always think back uh to those moments when we just sat in a circle and shared stories or we learned about our culture or trickster stories from an elder and, and whatever else right so those you know i have no specific example of that but i think that's that that practice again um has really been what's guided me to where I am today, and for that, I'm very thankful. I see literary success for myself as, again, just the practice, you know, the action of being able to write something, of really feeling empowered enough to imagine something that I want to convey in words, and then taking the next step in putting those words together into something small or something large. I consider really being able to write a full draft of a novel probably one of my greatest personal and professional accomplishments uh, because it takes a long time to write a novel uh, and there's a lot of work that goes into it. So to me, again, the action is the success. The bonus is when even just one person reads what I've written. You know, I uh, will always be honored and humbled by someone taking the time to read, even if it's just a short story or a social media post or an essay and then more uh, broadly a novel like that. That really means a lot to me. And I consider that a success to be able to connect with someone in that way, to have someone uh, spend their time with something that I've written. Because, you know, it takes a long time to read and we all only have so much time, right? I've been very fortunate to make a living of it now. This is my full-time job, being an author. It took a lot of work to get to this point and I don't take any of it lightly. Again, it's all a great responsibility. Uh, so, you know, that is another measure of success, I guess, of being able to support my family uh, with this work. But at the same time, it started with that those first steps, you know, of, of feeling confident enough to write and then share it with somebody else. So I always say that to people, you know, when they say, what, what does it take to be a writer? I think just writing it in the first place makes you a writer. But then taking that next step and sharing it with somebody, having somebody read it, you know, and then maybe offer you feedback or whatever else. That is a huge step in your growth as a writer, in my, in my opinion. And I think that's probably one of the greatest measures of success is just being able to make that connection. And I think I tell people that's all it takes, you know. It sounds simple, but it really means a lot. It's what's kept me going uh, through all this time. For more from Wab, you can visit his website at wab.ca. That's W-A-U-B dot And keep an eye out for Moon of the Turning Leaves, scheduled to release on October 10th. And as always, check out the Root and Stem magazine at pingwad.com for more knowledge and stories from STEAM professionals like Wab himself, or more episodes of the Root and Stem podcast available wherever you get your podcasts.